Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 18. And while you are turning and looking for Matthew 18, let me just ask you, when you hear the name Muhammad Ali, what comes to your mind? Right. Boxing, what else? That's right. The greatest, right? I mean, that, that would, Muhammad Ali. Now, he's been in the news recently because he just had his birthday, his 70th birthday, January 17th. Uh, age has kind of taken its effect. He's had Parkinson's disease ever since 1984. But Muhammad Ali, man, born Cassius Clay in the 1960s, he wins the light heavyweight gold medal at the Olympics. And four short years later, he wins the heavyweight champion. And this is a very famous photo where he knocks out Sonny Liston and he just dares him to get back up for some more of that, which I would have stayed right there with Sonny right there. I think I'm done. I don't need any more of that. He uh, he just he just walked around. He was just colossal. He was colossal in his long fighting career outside of the ring. Uh, he had some really famous interviews, uh, many of which were with Howard Cosell. Do you guys remember Howard Cosell? The guy with the little toupee, you know, I remember one time at a horse race, it kind of blew off. That was pretty funny to see that there. But he'd have he'd interview uh, Muhammad Ali and Muhammad, man, you know, he was always ready to go. He'd be like, come on, Howard, put him up. Let's go. Let's go right now. You know, like, Howard, right, come on, Ali, settle down. You know, and he had that great accent. And Muhammad Ali had this one little chant that he'd always go around saying, you know, fight like a, he would, you know, say, float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. I am the greatest. What? Muhammad Ali, right? And he had everybody saying that. And he'd just run around doing that. He'd try to fight with people and stuff like that. He was a great showman. An outstanding, powerful pugilist. And he considered himself to be the greatest. And a lot of people would say he was the greatest boxer of all time. And haven't you noticed that we're drawn to greatness? We ourselves, we want to be considered great. We're fascinated with influence and success. And importance. There's something in us that's just driven to be successful, influential. In reality, it's like this, friends. We live in a world and its culture is to aspire to greatness. And we will swim to the point of exhaustion so that we will be recognized, that we'll have esteem. And it, and it comes in all sorts of different places and respects to be considered financially well off. You will notice this if if you got some money in the bank and your investments are doing okay, and you feel like it's well with me because I've got money. And when you think about am I safe and secure, you always are drawn back to your money. But then there's there's things like being academically distinguished or the top salesman or some sort of athletic wonder or a musical genius or socially elite or a military might or just to be physically strong. And we we just want to identify. We want to set ourselves apart. And we even do this with our kids. What is the one thing that you know, they, can, they can be set apart to for greatness? Now, there's nothing wrong in and of themselves of any of the things that I mentioned. The one just profound problem is that that is not greatness in God's eyes. I know that I am not the only one who has got caught up in this, the world's beckoning of come, follow me, and be successful in my sight. I mean, it happens in the churches. It happens in every arena. At your work, at your school, there is this, we just get caught up with it. And what happens when we kind of buy into this world system of greatness? It feeds us. It shows us through the media. We're, we talk about it in our conversation. What, 
What does it actually end up doing? All of our busyness generally leads to a barrenness of soul. I mean, we just feel empty, depleted, famished. It's not that any of the things that we mentioned are wrong. It's just that this isn't greatness in God's eyes. When you come to Matthew 18, this question was on the forefront of the minds of Jesus' key followers, his apostles, his key disciples. They wanted to know who was the greatest. And it was an ongoing conversation. In fact, several times in the Gospels, it's recorded that it led to an argument, which must have been just beautiful. Jesus' key men, the one he's going to entrust with the church with, and they're fighting amongst themselves for a real good cause as to who might be the greatest. And so then when you come to Matthew 18, verse 1, look at this. It just like explodes from a personal private conversation to the point where we're going to ask Jesus himself and he'll settle it once for all. He's going to name which one of us is the greatest. So eight, chapter 18, verse one, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, in the Jewish mindset, rank, status, that was extremely important. Jesus had been talking about his kingdom. His kingdom is coming. And so they were naturally thinking kingdom, earthly kingdom, power, status, prestige. And they wanted the top spots. They wanted to actually be considered the greatest. Jesus kept talking about where he's going to go away. They're going to kill him. So uh, someone's going to have to be in charge. So which one is the greatest of us among us? And so they're asking this question. Now, you need to know, as we've been kind of going through the Gospel of Matthew, there's been some events that have kind of aggravated this problem. For instance, a lot of this centers on Peter. Peter was the one that he actually walks on water when Jesus tells him, get out of the boat then. You want to come? You come to me. And Peter walks on the water. Now, mind you, he started sinking and taking in water and drowning, and, and Jesus had to rescue him. But let's not get into all the, all the details of it. And then uh, Jesus went up onto a mountain. He took a private retreat. And guess what? Peter was one of the guys selected. James and John were the other two. And then... If you're reading in context, what just happened right before this? Jesus performs a miracle and he pays Peter's taxes. You remember that with the fish? Now, now this isn't oftentimes discussed miracle, but this obviously had a pretty profound effect on the disciples and not probably the one that Jesus intended because they saw it as like, whoa, we didn't get our taxes paid for. We got to show up with the true drachma task. And Jesus says, hey, go throw out a little hook, catch a fish inside. They'll pay taxes for me and you. Peter just got his taxes paid. And so they're probably thinking like either Peter's really weak and Jesus has just got to cover for him all the time. Or maybe he's the greatest. But they're starting to ask and wonder. And so they explode with this question. You can just see them. They finally had the guts enough to ask Jesus who's the greatest. And they're just kind of waiting for Jesus to name him. And they're all probably kind of thinking Probably me. And, you know, some of the guys that are thinking two steps in advance are going, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's me, but I'm going to act surprised. Like, oh, really, Jesus, it's me? Well, you know, and so they ask and Jesus gives an answer. He says, in fact, indeed, it is one among you. Look at verse two. And he called a what? A child to himself and set him before them. Whoa, whoa, whoa. They ask who's the greatest. They're fully expecting Jesus is going to say Andrew or Peter or John or Thomas. And Jesus says, you, you want to know who's the greatest? There, there's a child. Perhaps they're at Peter's house. Who knows where they're at? 
He tells this little child, here, come to me. He takes them and he sets them before all these men who are kind of thinking they're the greatest. And look what he says. Verse three. And he said, truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, he's not saying that children are sinless. Okay, for all of you parents, you know, like that ain't the case, right? I mean, I mean, they're born and a few weeks later they're sinning. You know what I'm saying? They're wrecking my day. They're doing wrong things and they have temper tantrums and all these problems. No, he's not saying that children are sinless. We're all born into sin. We're born into Adam. But what he's doing is he is highlighting certain features about children that are to be essentially found in his people that are essential to greatness in God's eyes. Namely, you're not just always on some sort of power trip. You're not always trying to look for grandeur and greatness in your own eyes. You're unassuming. You're you're trusting. In this case, this child actually obeys Jesus. He says, you want to be great in my sight? Well, greatness is this. Greatness is having an humble attitude like a child. And so he brings this child right before them. And you got to think about the disciples. I mean, what were they thinking to ask Jesus such a question, like, who is the greatest? I mean, do you, did they really think that Jesus, he'd probably really appreciate a question like this. Do you think that Jesus wanted to be asked that kind of question? And yet, adults everywhere, including today, were asking, who is the greatest? We want to know. We want to be in the know. We'd like to be in it. And you know, just look at, like, magazines. The 100 most powerful people in America. Hollywood's hottest couples, right? The most eligible bachelor, the fastest growing companies. We are attracted and driven. We want to know who is in, who is the greatest. And Jesus says, if you want to be great, verse three, he says, unless you are converted. Did you see that in verse three? Unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have to fundamentally be changed. Repentance and conversion go right hand in hand together. In fact, conversion is like the other side to repentance. Repentance is a brokenness and remorse, and it literally means to change in 180 degrees, but you do so with sorrow. Conversion is the same change, and it's a change from what had ensnared you, and it is a change and a focus upon God himself as your only hope for life, salvation, security, and eternity. And so he says, if you are going to be in my kingdom, you not only have to be like a child, you have to be converted. Let's just take a minute and acknowledge the fact that most people walk around with a drastic false assumption that well, everybody's just going to heaven and everybody's in relationship with God. And when they all die, we're just to assume they're going to go off to heaven. Wrong. You have to be changed. Colossians 1 says that we were all in the domain of darkness. We have to be transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. And you and I are spiritually dead. That means God has to do it. But what will it look like from the human perspective? Absolute humility, humbleness and brokenness before God. And until we are at a point where God, God, I am a huge sinner. I am seeing my sin. 
I see my self-centeredness and my pride and my arrogance and my racism and my uh, lying and my stealing and my lusting. And I see how that is just a, a grievous offense to you. I am nothing but a sinner. God save me. And until we come with a childlike attitude of humility, we're not going to be one of his people. We will not be in the kingdom. Now, people think like, well, you know, I'll just go to church. And if I go to church, and I show up every once in a while, then I'm going to be in the kingdom. I'll be one of God's people because I'm, I'm around him. I'm here. Come on. You guys are smart, right? Yeah. The answer to that is yes. Yeah. Think about that. Think about, like, for instance, if you spend a lot of time in your garage. Maybe you got a bunch of tools there. Maybe things aren't going so well at home in a marriage. And you're sleeping out in the garage. And, you know, and you're in the garage a lot. Does being in the garage make you a car? Answer the question. Anybody know? No, it doesn't. You might smell like your cars, right? Because your cars are in there. And if you're around them a lot, you're... But that doesn't make you a car because you're in the garage. You showing up in a church, you even being here at Fellowship Bible Church, that doesn't make you a Christian. Because you have to be changed. You have to be, like the text says, converted. You have to be changed. You have to change course from where you're at and your self-centeredness and your trust in and of yourself and your own ability to trusting and believing in Christ. And friends, it calls for a radical change. I was reading uh, this week. There's a Christian music artist named Kathy Tricoli, and I think some of you have heard her and certainly have heard her music. Beautiful voice has a very powerful testimony. But I was reading about kind of like life before Christ. Pretty interesting. She was actually doing an interview and I read this interview and she recalls when she was younger as a teenager, she was very rebellious. She was into drinking, partying. She was caught up in a vicious cycle of bulimia. And this is how she lived. And then she had a summer job where she encounters this Christian, a co-worker of hers, named Cindy. And let me just read a little bit of this interview when she talks about Cindy. Cindy, she was the epitome of a girl I could not hang out with. When she started telling me about Jesus, I made fun of her. And yet, deep down inside, I admired her. I liked that she didn't seem to care what people thought about her. I even suspected that she was right, and I was on the wrong path. And finally, Cindy said to me, you know, Kath, Jesus is Lord, whether you accept him or not. She said, I, I went home thinking about that. If Jesus was real, I had to check him out. So I plowed through the gospel of John. And when I got to the end, I knew I had to make a decision. Everything would have to change. And 16 years ago, it did. You see, you come with humility, brokenness, conversion. God draws you to himself by changing the course of your life, by changing its focus to where you're now focused on him. Humility is the characteristic of every one of God's children. It's the characteristic of a true disciple. And let me tell you, you can attach yourself to Jesus on your terms. And this is pretty big. I'll have Jesus the way I like him, when I want him, how I want him. You want an example of that? Judas. He's hanging with Jesus. Stick around as we go through the Gospel of Matthew and his true colors will come shining forth because he had Jesus on his terms, not on the Lord's himself. You know what is needed? 
is humility. You want to be a part of God's kingdom. The kingdom of heaven speaks of God's sphere of influence. He is the rightful king of the universe. He calls the shots. Those who are part of his kingdom are willingly obey. They're like a child. Jesus says something. We respond. If you want a biblical description of humility, what does that really look like, Grant? Then you might want to just write down these Philippians chapter two, verses three and four. It says, do nothing this, do nothing from selfishness or empty desire, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interests of others. That's what humility is. Humility is a dependence upon God. It is a freedom from one's own self-importance. When you can set aside your own power and how cool you are and how powerful you are and just live in the freedom and the grace of Christ, then you can live. Set that weight aside. Humility is an honest and humble concern for others. Humility is a true dependence upon God and it's a joyful obedience. What Jesus says, yeah, I want to do that. Why? Because I'm one of his kids. I'm one of his children. Today, though, many churches, messages, stuff, things that you hear on the radio, books that you can buy in bookstores about the Christian message. It seems about all about you and about your life and your best life now and how you can get everything you want. Dream it, have it, name it, claim it. You need to know that is a complete aberration to the gospel of Jesus. Jesus said, you know what, if you, if you find your life, you think you found it, Jesus said, I got news for you, you've lost it. Remember what he said in Matthew 10? You've lost it. However, if you lose your life for my sake, then you've found it. Did you want life? Humble yourself like a child. James says this, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Which will it be? He's opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And notice what else he says about humility and about relationship with him. He says, verse four, whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Did you want to be great? Then it has to look like a childlike humility. And furthermore, he says, and whoever, verse five, receives one such child in my name. Do you know what? He receives me. What Jesus is saying is how you treat my people is how you treat me. Do you know why that is? Because Jesus is absolutely united with his people. So much so, like it says in Ephesians chapter three, verse 17, that Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. We are united with him because we are his. He has sealed us with the Holy Spirit of promise. We are his And so how you treat his people, he says, that's how you treat me. And he is going to develop that theme in these upcoming verses. But if you want to be great, there's nothing wrong with greatness. In fact, my prayer is that you would be great. Do You know what greatness is? Greatness in God's eyes is humility like a child. Let me just tell you something else about greatness in God's eyes. It will require that you have a holy hatred of sin like God. Notice what he says in verse six. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, and that is key, you might want to underline that, who believe in me, because what he's doing, he's saying, 
those of you who are children, children of God, you believe in me. If anyone who causes one of these believed in me to stumble, he said, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. If you want to be great in God's eyes, you've got to have a holy hatred toward sin. Because without humility, you are a spiritual disaster waiting to happen because you will not have the inherent base and the foundation needed to address sin issues in your life. And so he says, if you want to be great, you're going to have to hate sin. And now he's going to build a case why sin is so terrible. And what he says here is, is if you cause one of these little ones who believe in we to to stumble, one of my children, that word stumble, uh, it actually is where we get the word scandalized from. It's scandalizo. Okay? And it has the idea that you place a trap or a snare before someone, and you catch them, and you bring them down. And Jesus says, let me tell you, if you cause one of my children to stumble, you ensnare them, he says, It would be better for you to have a very tragic death than to do that. These are my children. You better hate sin to the point where you don't ever want to cause one of God's people to stumble. Now, Jesus wasn't saying that the person that sins, he's not responsible because someone led him into it. Absolutely not. You sin no matter who led you into it, the world or some individual, maybe even some individual in the church. You are culpable and guilty. However, he says, it's even worse off for whoever led you into sin. And why is that? Why does Jesus make such strong statements like this? That is because it goes all the way back to like the Abrahamic covenant. That's because God has a unending, amazingly deep love for his children. Remember in the Abrahamic covenant, God told Abraham this. Those who bless you, I will bless. And he also said, and whoever curses you, the one who curses you, I will curse. He's saying, you're mine, Abraham. And everyone who believes in me like you, you believe in me. You have a righteousness that comes by faith. Everyone who believes in me like you, they bless you. I'm going to bless them. That is my nature. You do my children well, I will do you well. But if you curse them. You cause them to stumble, I'll deal with them. I will curse them. And this carries on, and this is what Jesus is following up on. You can, you can see it. Remember in, um, in Acts, where Saul of Tarsus, before he becomes Paul, the great apostle, he's on his way to Damascus, and what is he going to do in Damascus? He's going to go harass Christians and haul them off, off to prison. Some will die. Some will die some brutal deaths. He's doing his duty, right? He's, he's out on his way to Damascus. And then Jesus says, you know what? It's time. Bam. All of a sudden he's blinded. He's down there on the ground. And he hears this voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, who is Saul going to go harass and tie up and haul off to jail? Who was it? The church. Christians. But Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Because we're united with him. And that's what's going on here in verse six. You cause one of these little ones to stumble. 
He said, it'd be better for you to have a real tragic death. A heavy millstone, this is how they grind grain. They had these huge millstones. They weighed several hundred pounds. They'd tie a donkey up there, get that all kind of uh, hooked up together. Take two men. They'd lead this donkey around in big, huge circles, and they'd grind this grain. So there's a huge, heavy millstone. And Jesus said, it'd be better to have one of those tied around your neck, and you die in the deep sea, getting drowned in the depth of the sea. The Romans, interesting enough, they would sometimes do this, they're very pagan. Sometimes the prisoners, they tie a rope, uh, they tie a rock with a big rope, they fasten it to a prisoner's neck, and then they just throw them off a ship. Jews were horrified by that. I would be like, that would be one kind of tragic death they never wanted to die. Jesus says, it'd be better for that to happen to you than for you to scandalize, cause to trip up one of my children. Is this pretty sobering? These are not easy verses to read. How is it that you and I, how is it that a person might cause another one to trip up, stumble, be scandalized? I'll give you some ideas. One, just directly tempting them to sin. If you are just directly involved to entice them to slander or lie or immorality or to lie or you're encouraging lust. You encourage the disobedience to God or his authorities, whether that be parents or police. You are just actively involved in it. You're in the camp where Jesus says it'd be better for you to die a tragic death. Or let me give you another one that you find in the New Testament. When you cause someone to violate their conscience, Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 talks 8 and 10 talks about this, where you know that it's okay for you to do something. But there is a newer believer or a younger believer, or a believer that's not as mature, and they're pretty sure they shouldn't be doing those sort of things. And you go, come on, you can do this. For instance, um, we recently had some folks uh, that came and visited us from India. Remember that? Srinivas and his wife Sujata. Okay. Now, let me just tell you, when we were over in, in uh, India, I noticed that there were no Rudy's barbecue places anywhere. And I was looking, you know. I had about all the goat and chicken sort of things that I could eat and yellow rice, okay? There's no Rudy's over there because you know what? Because they don't eat cows. All the Hindus over there think they're sacred. So they just roam around and they do whatever they want. But when they were over here in America, though they would be free to eat beef, do you think it would be a good idea? Like, I'm going to take you to one of our finest barbecue places in Texas. No. It wouldn't be. Why? Because I would be... They, they would be like, what is going on? I would be like causing them to stumble. Same could be said with like drinking habits. You're out. You've got a brand new believer, maybe someone that really had struggled with alcohol issues in their life. And you're going to just show them what you're made of right there at the restaurant. And you keep ordering them up. No. Jesus says, you do not cause one of my children to stumble. Let me give you another example of stumbling. In context, and you're going to see this in the next few weeks, if you confront someone with a vengeful motive, like, I'm going to get you back, so I'm going to confront you with your sin, or you will fail to forgive a brother, which comes up beginning in verse 21, that's like laying a snare right there for them. Or just one other, leaving a sinful example. You are leaving a sinful example and others are following your steps. Jesus is addressing that issue. Now, I totally taken aback right now and i i'm like i have to stop and pause because i might be guilty of some of that huh how about you 
It's interesting. The text here says it's actually in the present tense. It's speaking of someone who has a lifestyle of doing this. But if any one verse would drive us to the gospel and drive us to Jesus Christ saying, I am guilty and I absolutely need you, your cleansing, your forgiveness. This would be one of those good verses, wouldn't it? You see, Jesus wants us to live in light of the gospel. And the light of the reality that we are forgiven, even if we are guilty of this, because we are trusting in Christ, we believe in him. We're one of the little children. And yes, we've messed up. And yes, we've sinned, but we believe in him. But he says, on the other hand, if you have made it your lifestyle pattern to do this, it'd be better for you to die a tragic death. And then he goes on to say in verse seven, woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. He says, woe, judgment is coming to the world and that and the world entices us to sin. It, it comes in all forms, overt, concealed with your computer, in your home, out in public. It just it urges you and beckons you to sin. And he says, "Woe, woe to the world because of stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks will come. They're going to be out there. They're coming. The world's going to provide him. But then he gives a second voice says, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling blocks come. If it's you, you need to know something. You're dealing with God and God is going to deal with you. And so he says, Jesus says, listen, you're going to need a holy hatred for sin. He says, verse eight, if your hand or foot causes you to stumble. Are you listening? Everybody have hands, feet, most folks. Cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. And what he's talking about here, it's your feet that would take you to places to sin. It's your hands that will accomplish it. He says, it's better for you to just cut that off than for you all together to go off into the eternal fire. And then verse nine, he says, if your eye causes you to stumble, whoa. And this has the idea that you see things, you envision things. If that's the case, pluck it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. Whoa, what's going on here? I mean, is this, this looks like a great little passage for your daily devotional, right? I mean, is Jesus, does he literally want us to start cutting off hands, feet, eyes? We have some gentlemen in the back that are going to help you right afterwards. They're called the prayer team. They got some sharp implants. They're, they're going to help you with your problem. Well, what is Jesus doing here? If he was literally meaning this to be the literal case, well, all of his men would have missing eyes, hands, feet. And all Christians would be like, oh, no, here I go. I've lost my other eye. OK, the problem is what he's doing here is he's saying he's using hyperbole. You use a figure of speech to excessively to drive home a point. What he's trying to say is. I mean business and the, the ability to actually confront sin issues comes because we believe in Christ. You see that in verse six. We believe in him. It's in our relationship with Christ actually urges us. It's the power of the Holy Spirit to make us holy, to actually address and deal with these issues. We and not ourselves can't do it apart from Christ. You can't stop sinning. But because of your relationship with Jesus, he gives you the strength and the ability to address sin problems and sin issues in your life. And it's not like it's an option, like, well, maybe he says you absolutely must and you can. 
You wouldn't want to be the guy who goes off to hell fully intact because he's never actually had a surgical sin, uh, a, a sin that dealt, a surgery that dealt with a sin, would you? No. You want to be the guy in relationship with Jesus, like it says in verse six, who believes in me, who actually is addressing these issues. You take sin seriously. And when he talks about the eternal fire and you see that fiery hell at the end of verse nine, that really it literally is Gehenna. That's the American pronunciation. Guyana is, the, is what they would say in Greek. And this was an actual place. Fiery hell. They always had a place when they talked about the fiery hell. They had a place they could always think of. It was actually right south of Jerusalem. This was the place where the pagans would actually sacrifice children by putting them in fire and they'd sacrifice them to the god Moloch. And this took place right south of Jerusalem. When good King Josiah came in, he cleared all that junk out there and all that idolatry and pagan worship, all that killing of children. They turned into a garbage dump. And they would burn that garbage and they'd kill off all those worms. But there was always a fire going there, a smoke, it smelled bad. Gehenna. And it became their picture and their description of hell. And he says, you wouldn't want to go there, would you? The reality is this. Apart from a saving relationship with Christ, the Bible is completely clear. This is the destination for those who refuse to believe who go their own way, who will not humble themselves like a child, who are going to do things their way, are going to be great in their own eyes, apart from a life-saving relationship with Christ, Gehenna, eternal fire, fiery hell. Friends, it doesn't need to be that way because of our relationship with Christ. We can overcome. That is the wonder and the beauty of the gospel. He's not only saved us from our past sin and from the future, but in the very present reality, he is there to rescue us and to give us strength. We don't have to live in our insecurities and our fear. You don't have to live in our sin. We can live in Christ. But he says this in verse 10. This is a really interesting verse. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my father who is in heaven. Jesus says, but you make sure that you take your spirituality beyond yourself to have a very strong concern for others. Don't you cause one of my little ones to stumble. And then he talks about these angels. Now, some folks go up. Oh, there it is. Guardian angel text. Uh, that'd be nice. However, the pronoun is collective. It's speaking generally. But there is a fascinating unseen world the angelic realm in which God commands his angels and they offer assistance. They actually serve those who will believe in Christ. You want a great text on that? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. He says, They're ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. God speaks and his angels immediately respond and they render service and help in ways that you and I don't know. Sometimes we go, whew, that was a close call. Or wow, what a coincidence. We say weird things like that. Please don't say good luck, okay? That's God is at work. And one day we will see just how powerfully he's at work. He's saying, my children, whether you are five or a hundred and five, their angels, the angels that are serving them and ministering in my name, they continue to see my face. I am that concerned about them. You want to be great in God's eyes? You've got to have a holy hatred of sin. The Puritan theologian John Owen wrote, 
He that hath slight thoughts of sin never had great thoughts of God. See, if you don't think much about sin issues in your life, you've just been plowing on with the same old sin issues, whatever that might be. You know what they are. And you could care less. Let me just tell you that probably is reflective of the reality that you don't think much about God. Because when we are concerned about sin and we don't want to do it, we realize it's an offense to the holiness of God. It's a violation for who we are as children. We also find God to be great. He's our savior, our redeemer, our strength, the one who's our overcomer. And so what do we do? We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So whatever it is, friends, you got pride, anger, lust, racism. If you got sin going on and you and God has brought that to the forefront of your mind right now. This text says, take it seriously. Got to have a holy hatred of sin like God. Now, we're talking about greatness. You want to be great? God wants you to be great. What will that look like? You got to have a humble attitude like a child. You have to have a holy hatred of sin like God does. You see, sin is an offense to him. He wants us to experience the life and the joy and the wonder of his character. Sin distorts relationships. It brings about death, disease. You've got to address sin. And let me just give you the third quality of those who are truly godly and great in his sight. They have a heart of compassion for the straying like Christ. Now, some of your Bibles may not have verse 11. Uh, if you have a New American Standard, you see these brackets in verse 11. It says, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. In many of our earliest manuscripts of Matthew, this verse is not found. It is found in Luke 19.10. It also has seek and save those who are lost. And my thought is uh, it probably was entered in. There's one of the scribes and he entered it in probably with very good intention. It very much follows what Jesus is going to say next. And he probably thought some scribe forgot to put this in there. Whether, what, whether it was in originally Matthew wrote it or not, one thing we know is that Jesus said it. He says, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. In a typical rabbinic fashion, Jesus asks a question to get his men thinking. And he says, verse 12, what do you think? Remember what's going on here? Instruction. He says, if any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? And so what he's doing here is he's giving him a parable. Now, they would be very familiar with this. hundred sheep, that was about the average size of a particular fold. You have a shepherd, one shepherd, hundred sheep. He would be complete control caring for these animals. He wanted to make sure everyone got their, got to wherever they need to be, back to their owner, back to the temple, whatever, safe, without any injury. And he would know, he just almost instinctively know if one was missing. And so what he says is he'd leave the 99 on the mountain and he'd go and he'd make a search. And this is what they did. He'd go and find the one that was straying. And he says in verse 13, if it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you that he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. And then Jesus says, so it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. And so what would happen is if shepherd realized, hey, one of my sheep is gone, he'd pen him up, 99, leave him on the mountain, maybe with another shepherd, and says, I've got to go after my lost one. And he would, and whether it was 
he was being there was like other animals trying to attack the sheep. Maybe it was trying to be stolen. Shepherds were nobody to mess with. And they take you on. David was a shepherd. He fought off bears. He'd kill something with his own bare hands if it needed to be done. If you were stealing him, you're going to deal with the shepherd. It, one of you was going to die. That was their mentality. You will not take what is mine. If the sheep was injured, he'd go, he'd rescue it. If it's broken leg, he'd, he'd actually go and put a splint on that. He'd take olive oil and put it on the wounds. He'd care for it. He'd put that sheep, he'd carry it on his shoulders, and he'd haul it back up with the other ones. And there'd be great rejoicing. Now, sometimes the shepherds didn't find the lost one. Maybe it fell off some sort of cliff. He didn't find it. But let me tell you about God. Jesus is the chief shepherd. And when one of his children is out of place and they are not where they should be, Jesus will find you and he will bring you back. No matter how far astray you've gone, where you've fallen into, what you're doing, if you are one of his, he gives eternal life, he's going to come and get you. And oftentimes he uses his people in that process. But it's like he delights in showing grace. Now, it's not to say that he's not concerned about the 99. He's rejoicing over them. There is great joy for those who are walking in the fold and doing as God intended. But what he's saying is, for the one who is straying and out there with their practices of sin and whatever, whoever's tripped him up, whatever's going on, I am coming for you. And I'm going to bring you back. And oftentimes he uses his people. Why? Because verse 14, it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. No matter how far you might be in the clutches of sin and of Satan, if you're one of his, he's going to bring you back. If you want an illustration of what this really looks like, what does verses 12 through 14 look like? I'd I'd like to read a a letter that I received not so long ago. I'm not going to tell you who this is from. Or the circumstances, but I, I want to read some excerpts from this letter because I want you to see what this looks like in a person's life. This person writes, I wanted to write you and to let you know how I'm doing. It meant a lot to me, and I, I talked to this individual. I remember, I remember you asking me if I had been broken yet. I don't exactly recall what my response was, but I can tell you that. No, I hadn't been broken yet. The breaking down began recently. And this individual goes on to write, But I am most grateful for the restoration that has been taking place in my life. Slowly but surely, my spirit is reawakening and my relationship through Jesus is coming back together. I'm learning all over again, it seems like. God is so amazing and I'm eager to get back to the relationship I once held with him. Even though this whole experience has not been fun for me. It was needed. I am working on strengthening my faith and learning and leaning completely on God's timing rather than my own understanding. I'm trying to focus on what God's plan is for me. I've been asking in a prayer for an answer to what God's plan is for my life. I am truly sorry for turning my back and forgetting my way. I know that God truly loves me or I wouldn't be where I'm at today. I'm so blessed that he has brought me to where I'm at. And listen to this. The parable of the lost sheep, the one we just read, really grabbed my heart and brought a sense of peace to my soul when I read it recently. I am excited for a new beginning in him. 
And then this individual writes, would you please pray for my faith as well as a comforted soul? I can't wait to be back in church praising and worshiping God with all of you. Friends, you just don't know who you might be sitting by today. But God is in the process of bringing lost ones, even his own ones that are lost, back into fellowship with him and his people. You know what greatness is? Godliness is greatness in God's eyes. Godliness is greatness in God's eyes, and God wants his people truly great. And so what will that look like? Friends, it'll look like having a humble attitude like a child, a holy hatred of sin like God, and a heart of compassion for the straying like Christ. So would you pray with me? Lord, how easily we get caught up in the things of this world. We buy the message. If we want to be great and distinguished in our own way, in our culture. There's nothing wrong with being distinguished or you even doing great things in our lives. In fact, you're the one who does it. You give these things. You give us the ability, the gifts. But Lord, we want to be great in your sight. So give us a humility like a child. Father, I pray that we'd have a holy hatred of sin. And Father, you know if we've got compassion for those who have lost their way or not. So Lord, we confess our sin. We cling to Jesus. He is life. He is everything to us. And Father, I pray that you would accomplish your work in us and through us. May we be everything you intended. May you accomplish your purposes in our life, that we would represent you well and walk with you in this generation. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.